This is the Distinctly Detroit Podcast. The only pod that explores why one wants to be in the D. I am your host, Fiota Ship III, the director of the University of Michigan Detroit Center. Join me as I interview students, scholars, leaders, and innovators about living, working, and loving in Detroit. Good day, and welcome to the Distinctly Detroit podcast, coming to you from the university room at the University of Michigan Detroit Center. I'm your host, Fiota Ship, and this is the only podcast that explores what makes one want to be in the D. With nearly 20 years of experience working with and for government, private industry, and the nonprofit sector, our next guest is an experienced and accomplished executive in the water and sewerage industry. She is a strategic visionary leader delivering transformational change. She is a graduate of the University of Michigan with a Bachelor of Science in Chemical Engineering and Wayne State University with a Master of Science in Civil Environmental Engineering. She currently works as the Deputy Director and Chief Engineer at the Detroit Water and Sewerage Department. Ladies and gentlemen, I present Palencia Mobley. Thank you. Yeah, thank you for coming out and joining us today. We really appreciate it. I'm going to start off first with how would you describe your job? So my job is extremely busy. Uh, I am responsible for overseeing all of the infrastructure renewal projects in the city of Detroit. So it's a very fancy way of saying replacing all the water main, renewing all of our sewer infrastructure, um, and implementing our green stormwater infrastructure plan. Uh, the other uh, things that I'm not responsible for Post Flint, um, there's a requirement in the state of Michigan to change lead service lines. And so that portfolio of work also falls under me. Okay, sounds cool. So now you're an engineer by training and education. What inspired you to pursue engineering as an education? Well, I was always really good at science. I really liked science. Um, I went to Bates Academy for middle school, you know, elementary middle school. And uh, we had a teacher there, Mrs. Peterson, and I was a little bit of a teacher's pet at the time. And uh, I just really, really loved science and she was a great teacher and I just stuck with it. And so as time went on, um, I was in DAPSEP early on. I think back then DAPSEP started at seventh grade and I started DAPSEP at seventh grade. And so it just piqued my curiosity. Um, I like building things, you know, I constructed my dollhouse myself when my daddy bought my dollhouse. So it's just something that I've always enjoyed doing. And when it was time to apply for college, and uh, it's kind of funny at the time, um, when I was applying to U of M, I wanted to be a biochemical engineer. That wasn't even a discipline. That is now a discipline, but it didn't even exist as a discipline at the time because I have an interest in like life sciences and I want to be able to blend the more technical aspects of making something with the human body. So at the time, um, biomedical engineering was a discipline, but it also wasn't a bachelor uh, program. You had to get a master's. So I ended up studying chemical engineering and um, really, can't say I enjoyed the coursework. Engineering as a discipline is interesting because a lot of the prereqs sometimes are weed out courses and then you get into your engineering courses and you will excel and you'll do absolutely fine but you know count three will have you thinking you don't even you know know if you're really pursuing the right thing and that was it. 
I got a friend from U of M Engineering says their one of the models they had when he was an undergrad was U of M Engineering, where your best hasn't been good enough since 1817. <laughs> That's that, how hard the program is. <laughs> that definitely could be said about the prereqs. The irony is in my actual engineering courses, I did very, very well. Okay. But those prereqs, you know, the differential equations, those are the things that were like, oh, what is this? Uh, but I also think those classes are different because there are 300, 400, 500 people in a room. And one of the challenges with engineering and then particularly at a school like the University of Michigan is if you're someone who has been uh, labeled as gifted your entire life or you tested in a certain percentile your entire life, you get to U of M and you're now normal. There's nothing different, so to speak, about you when it comes to, you know, you're with your peer cohort everywhere and so it's harder uh, to stand out so I think that also takes some adjusting to as well. Now something growing up I'm, I'm too from Detroit and growing up one of the things my mother used to always impart on me was that the water people really valued the water in Detroit they feel it's really important and the control so you are steward of one of the most valuable resources in this region that being the water how do you view that responsibility? So that responsibility is great you know, it's interesting, it's not the same as it was 10 years ago. When the city uh, filed for bankruptcy, we split the water department into a regional water authority, Great Lakes Water Authority, which I helped formulate, and the retail business, which is Detroit Water and Sewage Department. So Detroit still owns the assets, it leases them to the Great Lakes Water Authority, but they're responsible for the treatment. So all of the water plants, the wastewater treatment facilities, the wet weather facilities, the pump stations, they operate all of those things. And one of the things that still remains true is we have the best tasting water in the country. And so we are very, you know, fortunate from that standpoint, but also look at water as an opportunity uh, economically and as an economic engine. And I think oftentimes we take it for granted because it's something you turn on the tap, right? And it's it just comes there. out and it's always there. And we don't realize in this region the power we have with water. You know, if you look out west, they have very intricate water rights and requirements around how you can pull water and, you know, taking water across county line. I mean, it's very, very intricate. And here we don't have that. We have this abundance in the Great Lakes, um, which is 20% of the world's fresh water source. And so we really don't harness the power of that water to drive the economic engine of Southeast Michigan and quite honestly, the state of Michigan the way we could. That's interesting. That's never quite thought about it like that. So you touched us on a little bit, but what is the relationship between DWSD and the Great Lakes Water Authority? I liken it to a divorce uh, where, you know, some things go one way, some things go another way, but you still have a mutual interest, right? And that mutual interest is the water and the system as a whole. And so the city of Detroit receives a lease payment in the amount of $50 million annually uh, from Great Lakes Water Authority. And that was because during bankruptcy, it was determined that the most prudent thing was to keep the water utility public and that any assets from within that system, any revenues within the system, shouldn't be used to pay down debts from the general fund or obligations associated with the city's general fund, that it should be used for uh, reinvestment in the system. And so that reinvestment comes by way of Detroit receiving a $50 million lease payment, which we use to renew the water infrastructure and the sewer infrastructure. Uh, were it not for that lease payment, 
uh, we would really be struggling to replace water main and renew sewer assets in the city of Detroit. Cool. At least again, so my mother used to always tell me, they want the water, they want the water. The suburbs want the water. And just, okay. I didn't really understand it growing up until the bankruptcy stuff came down. Switching gears just a little bit, how do you explain the recent flooding issues in Metro Detroit? So, climate change is real. No one wants to really come to grips with what is happening. Um, just the other day, I think it was Italy received. I think it was seven and a half, some part of Italy received seven and a half inches of rain in like a two hour period or something. Something, wow. something just unreal. You know, China, right around when we had all of our extreme flooding, they had some flooding in which they basically received a year's worth of rainfall in like three days. And so it's not just here, it's around the country that we're seeing all of these unfortunate incidents with weather. And infrastructure you know, was not built for what we're seeing today. And to be very honest, I don't know that you can afford to build infrastructure for what we're seeing today. And, you know, trying to understand the recurrence. So you'll hear us a lot of times say, oh, it's the 10-year storm or the 100-year storm or the 1,000-year storm. That is what is typically referred to as the recurrence interval, like the frequency with which this can happen. But the 100-year storm, there's a 1% chance it can happen in any given year. So understanding that, now we have to look at what do we change around what we call flood control standards. Generally, these systems are designed for the 90th percentile, 95th percentile event, the event you get the most often and that outlier. And so we have a system that's basically designed for a 10-year, uh, one-hour storm, which is about 1.7 inches of rainfall. That is not what we've seen recently. Those events in June, subsequently another one in July and another one in August, one of them over three and a half inches of rain fell in like a 20 minute period um, in one little subsection of the city that kind of bordered Detroit and Dearborn. And so, you know, as practitioners, we use the past to help, you know, determine what the future will look like. And the challenge with climate change is the models don't all predict out the same way. And so there are some estimates, uh, there was a, a report commissioned by the Southeastern Michigan Council of Governments. And that report on climate change and rainfall basically is showing that the, what we now know as the 100 year storm is gonna be the 10 year storm by mid century, right? But the ranges of uncertainty are very great around these numbers. And so because we use historical data to try to predict what the future is going to be, um, these last few years worth of data will be very interesting in helping us try to determine how best to build resiliency into the system for the future. Detroit, like many older uh, urban communities, has a combined sewer system. And so really that's just means, and it's not fancy, it's not eloquent, this is just the way it was done, when you flush your toilet and when rain, you know, hits the street and runs off into the uh, catch basin, it all ends up in the same pipe. And before there were ever wastewater plants, all those pipes went straight out to the rivers. And so in the, you know, 30s, the 1930s is when wastewater treatment plants started coming online. There was clean treated water online before there were wastewater treatments online. 
because at the time that was the standard, right? Mm-hmm. That was that was how you did things. And so in Detroit, we're going to have to use a combination of approaches to build in resiliency. Some of that will be looking for opportunities to separate parts of the combined sewer system and have a, you know, a, a stormwater system in certain places. Uh, other things may be tunnels, you know, very deep tunnels that will take excess flow. Uh, and so there are a lot of conversations, not just as DWSD, as Great Lakes Water Authority, as well as other regions in the area, uh, because this is not something we all individually you know, do on our own, there's a collective here that'll have to happen in terms of the overall system response to climate change. Okay. Sounds like a big challenge, but um, how do you reconcile the concept of one's right to water with the needs of infrastructure maintenance? So, you know, there's a saying that, you know, water, if you go get it out the river or the lake, it's free. It's free, right? Um, it's not treated. But it's not treated. <laughs> and so, you know, you understand, particularly in Detroit, what our poverty issues are and that there is no, you know, the, the beginnings of a federal low-income water affordability or assistance program is in the makings. It hasn't quite hit just yet. No. But, you know, I truly believe access to water is very, very important. But I also understand that we have to have systems in place that support those who are not um, able to afford uh, clean water. And so, you know, it's interesting for years there has been the low income, the heat and warmth uh, programs, right? Yeah. LIHEAP, low income energy assistance program. But that is not something that exists on the water side. Yeah. And so there has been advocacy for some time. And I think COVID really brought to bear the need for access to clean water. And then that started pushing the conversation harder at the federal level around developing a national or a federal low income water uh, assistance program. And so it's baby steps. I believe some of the initial uh, funding should be coming down the tranche fairly soon, uh, but then there is a piece of it wrapped up in this infrastructure uh, bill that hasn't passed yet. So that triggers me to ask this question. What do you make of, I think it's Nestle, what do you, like corporations and getting water rights and taking all this water from the Great Lakes and shipping it around the country? So we live in a capitalist society. That we do. And you know, the, the challenge for those of us who are practitioners is, you know, understanding what treated water really is and, and what it does. And so in America, and, and, and honestly, some of the biggest consumers of bottled water are those who are low income and impoverished. Uh, and they shouldn't have, they shouldn't feel the need to buy bottled water because they feel like they don't have access. And that access is in terms of plumbing, right? And having adequate plumbing in their homes, et cetera. Not necessarily that the water that's being sent is not clean, uh, but that in addition to plumbing issues, you know, they buy water. And so, you know, I do have a variety of, you know, personal beliefs around how we harness um, and exploit water, particularly as a natural resource. Uh, But I also understand the society that we live in. And so I do think there are ways to responsibly harvest water for sale, but I also, you know, support 
You know, there are companies that buy traditional water off the municipal supply and choose to treat it one more step and then bottle it. That's different. And so this concept of spring water, and all, you know, all these different things, they're all interesting. Uh, but we live in a capitalist society, and I think from a policy perspective, you know, there are some questions that are, are brought to bear as to, you know, whether these are things that are necessary, right, or if it's something that really is just driven by capitalism and greed. Don't have much to say to that one. How... Well, you touched on this a little bit, but how has the pandemic affected you personally in terms of your view on water accessibility? So the pandemic, I call it the great equalizer. I stay in the city of Detroit. I do not stay in one of our named neighborhoods. I stay in a very regular neighborhood. And prior to the pandemic, I couldn't get DoorDash. I couldn't get Instacart. Right? These are things that were not accessible to me prior to the pandemic. And now they are. Now, granted, I'm not, um, I'm, you know, close to the border, right? I'm close to the Oakland County border. Um, and so I'm like 15 minutes from everything. So you would think these are things that would have been accessible to me, but they weren't. And so it equalized everything. And it normalized um, the fact that we all need various goods and services. And it also shows to me the power of the dollar. What, what you have learned from the pandemic, particularly, is that money talks that you know don't discount the urban environment because we've made a lot of folks who were in jobs that they no longer want to go back to they now you know have these hustles as door dashers and you know uber drivers and uber eats and those things and so it really created opportunities in some ways for people to break into uh, different careers or, or different avenues of uh, economic sustainability. But it also, you know, shed a light on the fact that there are so many uh, disparate, and that's not really the word I want to use, but there are just so many things that separate us. But the pandemic showed us one thing, we're all human. And we're all, you know, equal in terms of what we need for services. And so with respect to water, you know, it became critical. We, you know, were one of the first utilities in the country to announce we would not be doing any water service interruptions during COVID. Um, and, you know, immediately worked with the state to try to provide access to those who may not have had uh, access to water for a variety of reasons. Um, and there were homes that you couldn't even believe people were actually living in the homes, um, let, let alone not having water. But, you know, COVID really shed a light on some of the conditions folks are living in as well. But also from a humanitarian standpoint, you know, what are we doing to help each other get through this? Okay. What are some of the long-term goals at the, D, at the DWSD? So we have a couple of different things that we're working on. One of them is green stormwater infrastructure. And that's really a fancy way of saying using plants and natural systems to manage wet weather. And I often say wet weather. I don't like to say rainfall because it snows and snow will melt. And so you need those systems to function even in those instances. And so we have a variety of projects we've put in across the city of Detroit. We have about 16 projects that are managing about 60 million gallons of stormwater a year, which is really, really great uh, because when I started at the department, 
we really had only been putting the trees in. And this is part of a permit obligation, a regulatory obligation that we have. So long term, we have a, a variety of projects we're looking at, conceptual projects um, that really would knit together the fabric of different parts of the city and provide uh, an amenity and a benefit from a, a landscape perspective, but also provide functionality in terms of managing uh, wet weather. So those are some of the long-term things, of course, continuing to renew water and sewer infrastructure uh, and making those investments. And we you know, have made investments across the city. Uh, we're completing work in Cornerstone, Village neighborhood, uh, as well as North Rosedale Park. We have some work going on in the new center area right now. Um, we have work, you know, throughout the city of Detroit. Uh, we did, um, we pretty much have done most of out of drive east and west side over the course of the last few years. Okay. You touched upon this a little bit in terms of um, equity and that. What are some ways we can advocate for environmental justice in black and brown communities? Hmm. That's an interesting question. Oftentimes, you know, I'm not a planner. I often look at how things are laid out. So if you think about certain parts of the city that used to be very industrial, right? People walked to work. So the houses were very close to those industrial sites. But now we know that various industries can cause varying levels of pollutants. And so when you know better, you do better, you work smarter. And so, you know, you advocate for the right types of environmental controls uh, when these different facilities go in. But I also think it comes down to land use and planning and cities taking, you know, very proactive approaches. So different things that cities can do is require buffers be put in around industrial facilities where you have, you know, trees and things of that nature so they can begin to offset some of the things that may be a byproduct of whatever industry is coming in. So cities have a very big role in designing policies that protect black and brown communities. And uh, are you aware of any grassroots or community groups that are working on solutions to clean water or addressing clean water issues in the city? So there are a variety of groups. I don't like to mention any particular group okay. by name because there are a lot of different folks and, and groups that work on water access and, and water rights. Uh, so I don't want to call anybody out in particular because you know that thing you say one name and you forget one name. Yeah. You know, uh, it's a problem. but. Um, you know, through the Great Lakes Water Authority, the water, the RAP program, Water Residential Assistance Program was developed. And so the Great Lakes Water Authority puts a half percent of all revenues into a fund that is used to pay uh, the bills of low income uh, residents across the, the service area. And what was found is residents in other communities weren't accessing it. And so the Great Lakes Water Authority board takes a vote at the end of the year and whatever funds haven't been used, they have uh, the past few years redistributed those funds to communities like Detroit and Highland Park and I believe Flint. Okay, so there's stuff going on. That's that's good to know and you're right, you don't wanna get caught out there and <laughs> leaving anybody out. I don't wanna leave anybody out. <laughs> Okay, we're going to switch it up just a little bit. We're almost at our time, but uh, got a few questions we'd like to ask all our visitors. And curious to know, what are you reading right now? So I'm actually reading, um, and I'm going to mess up the name, but I'm reading a book on the power of manifestation. I am not a big um, nonfiction reader, for lack of a better way to say it. I tend to 
like to read urban fiction. Okay. Um, and so during the pandemic, I wanted to expand my, my reading choices. And so um, the book I'm reading, I think it's called Asking It Is Given. Okay. What are you listening to? Pods, music? So I, right now I'm kind of snuck stuck on an album that came out a couple months ago by Snow Allegra. Um, so I really, really like her. I like a lot of urban, um, I shouldn't say urban, but uh, neo soul, R&B. I like a lot of new artists. So Masego, Lucky Day, folks like that. What's your favorite restaurant in the city of Detroit? Oh, I don't know. Um, hmm, that's a good one. Uh, I, maybe I feel like I don't know because we haven't really been eating out a lot. <laughs> um, we did uh, the Rattlesnake Club a lot this summer, and that was great. Um, but probably one of my just favorite places you know, to go and have a good meal. Um, Central Detroit uh, okay. is a place I like. And then, of course, Cutters. Cutters was always the spot, you know, after a good hang. <laughs> okay. What is your favorite place to hang out or socialize in the city? Hmm. I don't know. I don't hang anymore. COVID, <laughs> COVID has completely messed up my social life. Um, I don't know. That's home. a good one. I guess now home in my garden, my backyard, my front porch. Um, you know, for a lot of my friends who um, needed to get away, my, my front porch really kind of became like the haven. So my front porch did become uh, the hangout uh, <laughs> last summer and this summer. Uh, but prior to the pandemic, um, I don't know. I can't say. Like, I, I, I'm one of those people who I like to go to different events. So concerts, things like that. I love going to different events. So I can't say that there's always one place that I'm like, I'm not the cheers person. In my okay. 20s, yes, it was floods. Um, in my late 30s and 40s, no. Okay. Well, are there any uh, traditional Detroit events that you like going to regularly? Um, I'm going to mess up the night. River Days. Okay. Yeah. I love River Days. And in all honesty, I'm, you know, a season ticket holder for Shane Park. Okay. Well, the Aretha. That's the, the name now, the Aretha. Yeah. I love live music. It is my absolute favorite thing to do. Um, and so. That's what you do. That's what I do. Okay. And uh, if a friend of yours would come into Detroit from out of town, what was the one thing you would tell them they had to do while they were visiting the city? I would say the Riverwalk. Okay. Uh, one of the most beautiful things, Riverwalk and or Belle Isle, but. One of the most beautiful things in the world is to watch the sun rise on the horizon over the water. And there's such a, a sense of peace and calm that I get from being around water uh, that I would say the Riverwalk because it is completely transformed. I think about being a kid in Detroit and not yeah. having that, but having that now and just what a difference it makes, um, the Riverwalk. Okay. Any last thoughts you wanna leave with our audience? Just that I love the city of Detroit. I am a Detroiter through and through. Um, I'm as real as it gets when it comes to being a Detroiter. I love being from here. You know, I wear the city on my, my heart and my sleeve and my face, where, wherever I can put it, you know, that old English D is there. And, you know, Detroiters have a true appreciation for hard work uh, and we love our city and we're committed. And so um, I will always be a Detroit girl. 
you all will not get rid of me i will be here um and you know i always tell my staff you know you all probably think i live in some fancy neighborhood in some gated community but no i stay off seven mile and so <laughs> that is what it is where can we find you so i am on facebook uh just my first name palencia mobley and i'm on instagram uh, at pmobley97 and uh, LinkedIn, of course. And you can always find me at work <laughs> or on the news when there's a problem. Yeah. All right. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is Palencia Mobley. Thank you all for listening and uh, talk to you soon. Thank you for listening to the DDP. This is a production of the University of Michigan Detroit Center. You can find us anywhere you get your pods. Please rate, review, and subscribe. This podcast is directed and produced by Marlon Franklin, edited by Mackenzie Hewitt, writing contributions by James Neely and Florence Alexander.